A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online. So any small business could be a driving force to create change or build an empire. We know old ideas aren't cutting it anymore. So we're calling for a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. So whatever you have in mind that will help make a different future, find everything you need to get started at GoDaddy.com. Because the future isn't decided yet. It's up to us to make it happen. Start different at GoDaddy.com. If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. This is an ode to Napa cabbage. Of all the cabbages on all the cabbage farms, only you have the crisp crunch worthy of our Bibigo Korean dumplings. No other cabbage would do, because no other cabbage tastes like you. We love you, Napa Cabbage. Just don't tell Green Onion. Napa Cabbage, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every hearty, flavorful Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. On this episode of Confessions of a Marketer, we're finding out how PR can add value to AR. Welcome back to Confessions of a Marketer. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. We have Duncan Chapel here to discuss PR agencies and how they can boost analyst relations. We'll get to that chat in just a moment. Next episode, we have a great chat with Peter Horst on a very timely topic, Marketing in the Age of Fake News. Peter has a new book by that name, and our discussion touched on a lot of burning hot issues. Speaking of hot issues, after the discussion of fake news, we're shifting the focus back to real stuff and the effects of GDPR on marketers. Jacques von Niekerk, Wonderman Data CEO, is back with us to chat about it about five months or so after the sweeping regulations went into effect. Lots more in the works for the weeks ahead, including a collaboration I'm undertaking on innovation. We might launch a separate podcast for chats about that, but we'll have a pilot in a couple of weeks. This is a great medium, I think, for exploring the ideas we present here. And there's so much out there. Look forward to sharing that with you in a couple of weeks. So stay tuned. On to Duncan Chapel. Maybe no one on earth has thought as much about analyst relations as Duncan has. He's written a book on influencer relations. He's a managing partner at Kia Company, which has trailblazed influencer research and analyst relations for tech and telecom firms. If that weren't enough, he's a PhD candidate in management at the University of Edinburgh, which is where he was when we spoke. Duncan has the acumen of a business person and the insight of an academic. I wanted to talk to him about how PR agencies can add value to analyst relations, and our discussion took off from there, as it always does. Let's get to it. Duncan Chapel, welcome back to Confessions of Marker. Pleasure to have you here. It's wonderful to be here, as always. Thank you so much for having me here, Mark. So we're talking about how PR agencies can boost AR, and um, maybe it's about budget. Is it because AR budgets are not accessible to PR? You know, why, why is that? And also, there are very few agencies, PR agencies, that focus on AR. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Well, these are these are good questions. I think one of the frustrating things to public relations managers, both in-house and and in agencies, is that they know that analyst relations budgets exist. Yeah, I mean, it's maybe it's a little bit like Bigfoot, <laughs> uh, but they, they they know that the budgets are out there, and 
In fact, one of the analyst firms, IDC, has been following that for us. So every year they publish a tech marketing tracker that looks at the spend for the whole range of marketing activities. And obviously, almost half of that goes on advertising and events. Year after year, I hear public relations managers say, well, we know, you know, 3.7% of the, of the total pot goes on, on public relations. 1.9%, so a little bit more than a half of that goes on analyst relations, but we can't see it. It's not available to us. And often analyst relations, it's a really substantial part of tech marketing, but it's often siloed and isolated geographically. Often it's very centralized in the headquarters. So it's not really accessible. It's not accessible to PR managers because of that. When PR managers are hiring PR agencies, normally they don't have the funds or the responsibility for analyst relations. And that means that even if PR agencies think that they're able to do analyst relations, Actually, PR managers either don't have the money to do that, or if they do have the money, it's like a discretionary, nice to have that they're not really being held accountable to. It's the kind of expenditure where the agency and the client have to work together to make a business case to have these funds made available. So that is really problematic because so many companies keep responsibility for public relations away from media relations. And that means that often there's just very little awareness about, about how to do it, how to generate public relations that really benefits the business. And I have to say here in Europe, that is even more profound because with, with a few exceptions, uh, Israel is a very good example of success, but generally outside the United States, tech firms are coming to analyst relations very late. So that average of 1.9% of the whole tech marketing spend going on analyst relations, that might be a little bit higher for US-based organizations, especially larger organizations that might have dozens and dozens of people working on analyst relations and more resource in their network. But then it might be a little bit less than 1.9% for companies headquartered outside the United States. Do those firms go to analysts for a specific reason and don't think of it as a relationship? They go to get a data point or some help with a product introduction and don't think of it as a long-term commitment? Mm. I think there are two directions that firms come in to meeting industry analyst organizations. One is the insight route. So you're, you're coming into a market, you want to get a better idea of what's going on in your market. Maybe you've got a product that you're working on, a new solution. You want to see how you should position that, how you should localize it, whether the technology direction is right. I mean, there are all of these things that industry analyst firms are able to do to help technology providers develop their solutions all the way through the life cycle. But then the other way in is uh, trying to build pipeline. And actually, organizations have very different routes into trying to build pipeline. One is the opinion route, right. where you're trying to get analysts' attention, you're trying to see if they will provide quotes for your press releases to see if there are tweets that you can uh, mobilize. The, the second strategy, of course, is pay to play, that there are some people who believe that if you pay analyst firms, subscribe to analyst firms, then they will do their best to push work in your direction. And of course, that has never happened in the history of analyst relations, right? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, mean the, the, I, think, I think the sad fact is that actually many account managers will give clients the impression that that is how it works. And it's very often the, the, the case that you'll speak to people at analyst firms 
and they will say, you know, we are absolutely not pay to play. We have no idea who, which firms are our clients. We don't really care which firms are our clients. We have to conduct independent research, otherwise we won't be taken seriously. But then when people relate to you the conversations that they've had with account managers, they've got very different stories, really, yeah. really different stories. Yeah. And then when you, when you kind of widen the spotlight a little bit to look at the full range of people who are using analysts, so people on the buy side as well as suppliers, even people on the buy side know that there are some analyst firms that have got less of a reputation for integrity. There definitely are some analyst firms. But that the, the you can, where your commercial relationship with that firm is going to influence what they say about you. But the fascinating thing is, buyers know that. Mm. Yeah? So, for example, you know, for, for, there's this analyst value survey that tracks the opinions of buyers. And actually, the buyers can tell which research is more or less independent. Of course, sometimes they still have to use that research that's less independent. If that's the only stuff they can get hold of for free on Google, right. they're going to use it. But they can smell it. And that, that, I think, really impresses me and gives me a lot more confidence in the effectiveness of the technology market. So th there is an opportunity there, though, for PR agencies, but it's, it's limited. What, what's the limitation other than budget? Well, I think, uh, I think the limitation, well, really, the, the first problem with budget, it's not that the budgets are limited. I mean, actually, they're really substantial. It's more than half the budget for public relations. The problem is it's not accessible to PR agencies because that budget isn't accessible to in-house PR managers. So very often it's, it's ring-fenced and it's, I mean, maybe it's somewhere else in marketing communications, it's somewhere else in marketing, it's in the CFO's office, it's in, it's in, it's in product marketing. I mean, it's, it's in many, many places, but it's not normally yeah. inside the media relations organization. And then the, the other challenge is, is something to do with efficiency and the, the goals and outcomes of analyst relations. That if you think of the difference between driving attention and driving action, I think public relations agencies, social media marketing agencies are very good at driving attention. Yeah. But actually getting analysts' attention doesn't really shift anything in the pipeline. You know, if, if there's a list of seven firms and you're the sixth in that list of seven firms, it's not going to make a big difference to you. What makes a big difference to you is changes in the actions that analysts take when they're producing signature research, when they're in spoken word interactions with clients, when they're in consulting uh, engagements. And the kind of low-level background noise that public relations companies are great at developing, that just doesn't kind of flip over qualitatively into, generation, into generating recommendations. Right. And big analyst relations teams, they know how to do that. Yeah, big analyst relations teams, both in big agencies and in, 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 in big vendors and in mid-sized vendors, they've learned how to use analyst relations to drive the pipeline. But generally, most public relations agencies don't know how to do that yeah. because most public relations managers just don't have that on their to-do list. So the capacity never develops spontaneously. It's a, it's a classic problem of kind of endogenous and exogenous growth, yeah? that if, if agencies want to build into analyst relations, they typically have to bring that expertise in, yeah. and then they have to sell. They, they can't cross-sell analyst relations. They have to sell it to other people in the organization. They have to get the PR manager to introduce them to product managers, to marketing directors, to sales managers, to VPs of, of, of product strategy. It, it's, it's quite a complex uh, sale. 
And then it just comes down to a chicken and egg problem that if PR doesn't understand what needs to be done and if PR agencies don't have the, the, the process models and the service levels and the war stories and the data, then it's really hard for them to convince their PR clients in-house to develop the budget for analyst relations and to make it available to public relations, even though there are big advantages of public relations having access to analyst relations activities because there are obvious synergies with, with messaging, with being able to use analysts in media relations and use the media to reward analysts who are, who are kind of on your wavelength. Yeah. It's interesting. Boy, you could talk for hours about that, but I want to <laughs> move to something more about you and the, the folks at Kia. Mm. You've got an analyst value review service for agencies and analyst relations firms. Done quite a bit of research around this. Can you tell me about it? Absolutely. We've been uh, working over the, over the last year with a major kind of world-class business school where we've been working with them giving them our ideas, our experiences about what's driven the success of analyst relations for agencies. And we've shared our own experience, the experience of agencies that we've worked with. And then we've had this amazing experience where for a semester, 60 students taking an elective in business marketing broke up into groups and fanned out looking at different parts of the value proposition for analyst relations yeah. and then came back and reported to us systematically task by task by task by task on questions like uh well i mean on on, on the whole gamut of activities uh to do with uh, what makes analyst relations successful and what is hindering the growth of analyst relations. You break that down into five areas, value propositions, brand communications, sales strategy, the configuration of the AR offer and sales channels. Can you go through them and share how agencies can work better in these areas? Sure. One of the things that we've seen is that agencies are struggling to sell analyst relations and in particular, they're struggling to find the right, the right value proposition. Very often what I see is that agencies only have price as a way of convincing clients to spend on analyst relations. Public relations agencies normally speak to public relations managers who don't have the kind of large freestanding budgets available for analyst relations that they have for media relations. So they have to try to persuade people to free up money that they're already spending. So, you know, it, it's like you've got committed expenditure and I'm asking you to economize on your committed expenditure to go below what you need for what you're doing on a regular basis mm -hmm. and to try to free up a sliver of that for something extra. So that, that is a big ask. That's a big, big ask in, in any setting. And it means that generally, Agencies might be like high tech agencies might be getting five or 10% of their revenues from analyst relations, but it's very hard to push up above that. That's partly because of the availability of, of budget, but it's also because of value. It's very hard for agencies to show the business value of the analyst relations that they're doing. And in, in fact, there's a, there's a sort of self defeating loop that agencies understand that they have to squeeze this money out of existing uh, resources. So they are bringing the price down a, a long way. I mean, to be honest, if you, want, if you want a global analyst relations program, you can't really expect to get that 
for much less than $100,000 a year. Yeah. But I see agencies that are trying to do analyst relations for $10,000 a year. And there's something that you can do for that. But that low price is a signal of the value. <laughs> and, and it does show a lack of confidence in the value that's really being produced. Of course, at a higher price, clients understand that they'll get better service, they'll get a higher cadence of, of communication, they'll get wider outreach, they'll be able to speak to not just the tier one analysts, but tier two analysts and tier three analysts. Yeah. But unless agencies can understand ways to communicate the value, they're never going to really move their clients forward. They won't be able to show better results and therefore their clients are never going to grow those budgets. So it's it's a really straightforward challenge that if you can't show the value, no price is low enough uh, that clients are going to always want to buy it from you. And you get what you pay for. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think there's a, there's a kind of paradigm of, of doing public relations, uh, doing all kinds of public relations the same way that you do media relations and looking at media relations activities and then transplanting that methodology across to other publics, even through to the, the measurements and the deliverables. And that will give you a consistent but poor form of analyst relations. And I think in a way it kind of links up to problems about, about communication. Because if public relations agencies see themselves as organizations that are driving attention, driving profile, it's very hard for them to communicate this other value proposition, right. which is about pipeline value and changing the quality of communication not just the volume of communication. If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. Right. In, in some ways, I hesitate to use this term, but PR is kind of an anachronism. And maybe it's it's not going away, but it's certainly far different than it was even just a few short years ago. So thinking about what we just discussed, what are the key takeaways for a PR agency looking to boost their value and move into AR? I think, and frankly, I think public relations agencies have to reposition themselves as not being public relations agencies. Mm -hmm. I think you you know public relations is an activity, not a benefit. Yeah. And so agencies have to really think about their reality today and the kinds of aspirations that are credible. What are the aspirations for your growth that you can lead yourselves forward in a few years into a more credible position? So I think there's a great example, a very positive example that comes to mind. Here in the United Kingdom, there's been a, a group of public relations and marketing communications agencies, uh, Rocket and Octopus Group, Loudhouse. Those organizations have combined themselves into what they call a brand to sales agency. Mm. So they're bringing together marketing communications, public relations, influencer marketing, market research into a stronger proposition with a goal of sales. Now, of course, sales isn't the only goal that you could have. You know, you could, for example, have the goal of helping pre-IPO firms to reach an exit at a higher value. I've come across a couple of public relations agencies that have that as their goal and have that success as their measurement. You could also see reputational risk management as being a, as a market stance that public relations agencies could grow into. Another really good example with Edelman is that they sell trust. 
Right. Yeah, that's how they position themselves as an organization that builds trust. Public relations agencies have to be able to more broadly consider the, the value that they're generating and think of a value that isn't just more profile in, in, in the media. And then I think that links to a broader value proposition. And I think public relations agencies have to understand that the, the PR market is always more brutal, more contested, switching costs get lower and lower. The rise of social media makes it harder and harder to really show the value of authentic grassroots relationships when it's possible to kind of produce astroturf media coverage so easily. The opportunity exists for PR agencies to try to broaden out their service portfolio initially into quite close areas. So analyst relations, content marketing, maybe like pre-sales, qualification, graphic design, social media, web design, you know, there are lots of areas like this that are fairly easy to grow out into. And all of that in, increases your share of pocket from the client. It increases switching costs. It makes you less vulnerable to the low barriers to entry in the PR, in the PR market, because anybody with a laptop can become a PR agency. Right. But if, if you're a full service agency, it's very hard to be displaced. If you think of the transition that Octopus Group has gone through, two or three people with a big enough Rolodex could easily displace a public relations agency, especially one national public relations agency serving one national market. Yeah. But then if you're in a global network and you're providing global services, you can't be displaced by a small business. And most public relations agencies are small businesses. So suddenly you've got a different kind of competitive market in a certain sense, you're in a different market category. And clients then start to have the choice between buying from public relations agencies that are pure play public relations agencies that suddenly seem very vulnerable and not very joined up, and then having multi-service agencies, which then have got the possibility to help your firm as you grow and as you need other marketing communications disciplines. Being in PR used to be all about the Rolodex. And it doesn't seem as important as it used to be. It's really hard to be a journalist these days. And if you pick up a newspaper, even a, even a fantastic newspaper, and you just flick through the pages, if you've got a trained eye, you can see which organizations have placed those articles. Yeah. You know, you look through article after article after article after article you see the company being quoted you see the company study being generated you can see the articles that were generated by public relations and where the framework of the story just feels like the framework of the story the way that it was pitched by the pr agency right and it wasn't like that 20 years ago yeah 20 years ago you would pitch in a story and even if the journalist accepted it they would be critical of the framework they would speak to other competitors it would not look so transparent. But life is really hard for journalists, and more and more journalists aren't really working full-time for the papers that they work for. The expectations of how many things people have to produce is sky high, and so that means that it's easier to generate low-quality coverage than it ever was before. And because public relations measurement techniques are still very immature, it can be very hard for good agencies to really show the difference between the value of what they are producing and the value of cheap and easy media relations. This whole problem of showing the value that you're generating 
is in a way really fundamental to many marketing and communications agencies because the managers themselves are very qualitative people who've shied away from being able to quantify things. Yeah. And I'm afraid you just can't get away with that anymore because disciplines which do quantify themselves will just continue to eat your budget until the unmeasurable activities just get shrunk down to quite a vestigial element of the marketing mix. And, you know, what we're talking about here is how to show value. And the way you show value is by quantifying it. Absolutely. Yeah. I think if, well, I, I think there's another element of it. You need to actually provide it. A small detail. <laughs> exactly. No, but actually in, in the case of analyst relations, it, it's very important. So, so we talk about attention AR mm. and pipeline AR. So attention AR is generating mentions. And pipeline AR is generating analyst actions. A lot of organizations are not really aware of whether or not they are changing what analysts really do as a result of their analyst relations programs. So because of that, they're not delivering real value. They're not showing that they're able to deliver real value. Of course, it's easier for the client themselves to measure this value. You can do win-loss analysis. You can do surveys in your, in your salespeople, but even agencies can start to get a clearer idea of which analysts are influencing sales. Many agencies don't really know that. They can start to really track whether they are speaking about us more, speaking about us less, whether they're more positive, whether they're less positive. You can ask analysts, you can certainly ask analysts, account directors, how many shortlists are you advising on? Which market segments are your clients mostly in? I mean, you can pressure the analysts to become more transparent about where they're influencing your sales pipeline. And the firms that will be most transparent will be the ones that will be most confident about the materiality and substantial nature of their impact on sales. And that will help you to refocus your effort. I think there's another complication that has to be mentioned, which is about selling time rather than selling value. Mm. The many public relations agencies sell time and they will organize analyst relations activities that destroy value for their clients because they create billable hours. Right. And that's a real challenge because it's a, it's a short-term squeeze of the client, but eventually it generates huge skepticism inside the client because the, the value generated by these activities doesn't become uh, transparent. Agencies can sell just as much time but for different activities to develop more analyst intelligence, to be proactively identifying and tracking and weaponizing comment by analysts, looking for comment by analysts that can be fed back to salespeople, that can be used in comparative analyses, making sure that you've got a bank of material so that if a hostile report comes out, you've got a cache of explosive positive commentary that you can throw out to defend yourself in case one relationship with an analyst backfires unexpectedly. There are lots of ways that analysts can be used to help tech firms, and agencies should be mapping that. Agencies should be building a, a kind of crisis communications plan into their analyst relations, tracking the analysts, measuring, helping the organization to enable sales with these outputs. And because agencies don't know how to do that, they're just able to sell hours. And that doesn't necessarily help everyone. In fact, one of the things I really believe is that most analyst relations effort is now being wasted because it's not being allocated sufficiently onto the most influential analysts. So how do you find the most influential analyst then? Let me just pour some tea. Sorry. <laughs> 
I'd say there are three ways that you can identify the most influential analysts. Uh, one way is directly through your own sales organization. So it's true, good sales managers have always been taught to never ask a client a question that they don't know the answer to already. It's, it's like being an attorney. But if you're brave enough to ask your clients and your prospects which analyst firms they use, then you can get a very clear idea of what's going on. Second way you can do that, a little bit more limited, in the volume of data that it generates is win-loss analysis. Mm. So if you go back to clients just at the moment when they've decided to buy from you or if they've decided to not buy from you, okay, you'll get a smaller amount of information from sending out a broadband email, but you're going to get really appropriate information. Right. And often buyers at that point in the purchasing process have got a high degree of obligation towards you. Either they've just said no, in which case they're feeling guilty because you've spent all of that time with them, or they've just said yes, in which case they're not worried about the secrets leaking out about who advised them, and they want to show goodwill to solidify the new relationship that they have with you. The win-loss analysis is a very good way of doing it. The third tool that's available, which is actually used a little bit more by investors and market intelligence professionals than by agencies, is the Analyst Value Survey. So that's an, an annual survey that's been running since 2001 or 2002 that every year surveys people who are using analyst firms. And it says, which firms do you use? What do you use them for? And how valuable are they? So you can segment that data in by different market segments and get quite a clear idea of which analyst firms are influencing your market. So, of course, that's going to be a rather generic answer because you might be in a particular segment of your market or you might be selling into a particular uh, group of firms at a particular life cycle stage or in a particular national market. But the analyst value survey is definitely a very strong way for getting a, a very concrete feel of which firms are influencing the sales market. I should say, in my experience, it's really vital to do at least one of those three. I meet a lot of people who have completely mistaken ideas of which analysts are influencing their market. And, and there are two elements of that. One is, you know, Gartner is the biggest analyst firm. Lots of people think that Gartner influences most, has got most of the analyst influence. And it's got more than anybody else, but it actually doesn't have most analyst influence. You know, there are, I don't know, 8,000 analysts and maybe 1,200 of them work at Gartner or 1,000 of them work at Gartner. They are influential, but they're definitely not the most influential in every country or in every market segment. And they're not more influential than everybody else added together. But lots of people behave as if they are. Mm. The other problem that I see is there are various analyst firms which are very good at serving providers, you know, firms that kind of get your market that are really helpful to your product managers. And often those organizations have evolved to be useful to vendors. And they may not be very useful to people who are your clients and prospects. Right. But very often we overvalue the people who are useful to us and we don't understand. And we assume, in fact, that the people who we like are liked by our clients and prospects. And of course, that's very unlikely to be true. Boy, I could just go on and on and we'd probably run out of space on our computers. But um, <laughs> Duncan, as always, it's thought-provoking to chat with you. And thanks for being a guest here on Confessions of a Marketer. Thank you. It's, it's delightful. I really 
love being on your podcast series because it's it's really one of the few podcast series that really challenges me to think again about the way that uh, our whole uh, industry community is moving. Well, it was great to have you here. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks to Duncan for being my guest. Some stimulating thinking, I think, for PR agencies today, or in fact, any kind of marketer looking to add value to their clients. Take it to heart. Next week, Peter Horst will be in to talk about marketing in the fake news era. So stay with us. This episode of Confessions of a Marketer was written, produced, and edited by yours truly. T. Jordan of A-Class Productions wrote the theme music. Confessions of a Marketer is a trademark of Reed Edwards Global Inc., and this episode is copyright 2018. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. See you next time. You've never tried to eyeball six feet as often as you do now. You wear a mask, you wash your hands, and you've stayed within the walls of your apartment for more hours than you care to add up. But unless you live in a smoke-free building, you're not exactly home free. Secondhand smoke drifting through the cracks in walls or sink drains carries toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. And right now, lung health is key. Go to tobaccofreeca.com to learn how to stay safe.